This is The Thirst Tank, presented by Trap Brewing Company. I, I found it interesting that Tuol was basically doing a little bit the same that Mikolar was doing, but he was aiming for the more extreme, uh, while Tuol was somehow doing the same, but keeping a level of balance to everything that he did. And that really spoke to me because I come from a classic sommelier background. Uh, I worked in kitchens. Um, so, so I have this concept of things like every flavor or aroma should be there for a reason. It doesn't make sense to me to shove all stupid stuff into a bottle if it doesn't taste good in the end. Hello and welcome to The Thirst Time, the show that takes a deep dive into the minds and careers of some of the most creative and brilliant people in the beer industry today. Today's guest has gone from art student to heading international sales for the ever-awesome Two All Beer. She is Linda Skogholt. I hope I pronounced that okay, Linda. Two <laughs> um, All have been one of the leading figures of the European beer scene for quite some time now. And at the start of 2020, they started producing beer at the huge and incredibly ambitious project that is Tuol City, a brewery nestled in an old ketchup factory just outside of Copenhagen. Linda has had to kind of take care of the sales on all of these fronts, especially going through the pandemic. And of course, we don't need to say that that has been challenging and challenging for everyone out there. Um, I thought this episode was super cool. Linda took a total sidestep from being a trainee tattoo artist to a wine sommelier, to running bars, to owning a bar, Bruss, in Oslo, and within all of that, forming a lasting relationship with Tor, owner and founder of Tool, which eventually led her to head up international sales for the aforementioned brewery. Um, the more I do these episodes, the more I realise how that little bit of luck can lead to a whole career vastly different to what you ever expected. That was my case, and it seems to be a theme running throughout each interview. And I think that's why I love this business so much. A collection of people from all walks of life, using their skills learned in other trades to push forward the creative current that runs through modern craft beer. So, let's get to it. You are listening to The Thirst Time. This is our interview with Linda Skogholt. And we start with that all-important question, what was that first beer for her? I have two really clear memories of having that mm-hmm. beer that changed everything for me. And the first one didn't necessarily bring me into craft beer, but I, I grew up in Telemark, which is like the countryside, middle of fucking nowhere in Norway. No good beers <laughs> ever sat foot in Telemark. And... I was at the time paying my way through art school by bartending at night. And yeah, one of my like fellow students, uh, we were uh, traveling for an art show in Stockholm and I'd been drinking sheep lagers my whole life. And we went to actually an Irish pub and she bought me a Guinness classic and sat it in front of me. And that beer changed my whole perception of what a beer actually is. What look like what it should smell like and definitely what it should taste like that was i had never had anything like that in my life can you give us a bit of a time frame of like what kind of year is this what what kind of time is it this was in 1998 (laughs) i was 18 years old uh, and I've like recently started drinking at pubs because in Norway you have to be 18 to have a beer in a pub. Um, so yeah, I, w- I would say I was like six months into bar culture. And for me, an Irish pub was something also totally new. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of you just sitting there in an Irish pub with a Guinness, just like, holy shit, what yeah. is this? Um so what was it about it? Just, just to, I guess like Guinness as well has such a different kind of texture to it and a kind of just a different feel to it. Um, and then obviously being surrounded by the, the beautiful Irish uh, kind of ambience uh, must have like set you, did it set you on a kind of immediate um, journey through really starting to search things out? Or was it still a kind of just like every time I see Guinness, I'm going to drink it, but I'm not really going to explore uh, outside. I would that. say it like, 
immediately hit my aesthetic uh, sense as well because I mean it's beautiful mm -hmm. pitch black with a nice like off-white foamy head so it, it spoke to me on so many levels and it yeah. definitely did change my way on how I approached uh, the drinks that I was serving because uh, I was already then working in a bar um, and made me curious about things not only beer i would say flavors in general also like coffee was growing in cool. norway and wine was growing in norway so there was this whole universe opened up for a country girl i love it and uh, the i loved it that it didn't just take you on the journey of kind of like what beer can be and i think i think it kind of similar for me as well where you're just like right well if this is one item in front of me that has all of this different like amounts of different variants that uh that are going to change how i perceive that thing then then i want to explore it in every single avenue but you also said there was another beer so what was that next one uh for you the next one was some years later i already worked in the trade for some years and and started working with imports of beer and i i got my hands on a really like classic portfolio of beers and i got to travel a lot to belgium and they're like Highest gem, I would say, in my portfolio was Orval. And being flown down to, to Belgium and visiting Orval and being explained this whole, like, universe of different levels of fermentation and different levels of um, yeast and bacteria added was yeah. also... And the history. And the history and the cheese yeah. factory next to it. I mean... Oh, man. That was also... And I would say that was maybe something that brought me closer to the craft side mm -hmm. of, of beer and, and brought me closer to wanting to explore breweries and try different styles of beer and, and look into the history and tradition of brewing. So yeah, two very different experiences, but both like life changing, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Belgium side of things as well is just, it just has so much heart to it. So much like, it's just a different place to be compared to, you know, like sitting in an Irish pub, which is this kind of like inauthentic environment. And then going to Orval, where it's like the most authentic, traditional, hundreds of years of process gone into it. Um, and it, yeah, just that when you, whenever you sit in those Belgian bars, you just want to sit and drink for hours and hours and hours and let the time go by. Yeah. Um, so when I first came into contact with you, you kind of started, uh, so you kind of mentioned there a little bit about imports so were you was that just a little bit of uh, responsibility that got put on your shoulders for the bar that you were kind of working in it, this wasn't your own venture at that time no so I think for me it was like started with fine arts and, and yeah. the whole bar industry just paying my way through it and, and then shout out to all the artists who end up in bars and musicians uh, I being one as well <laughs> <laughs> And then I, I won't say that that one Guinness was like what made it all uh, flip upside, but but um, I, I started working more with wine than beer, to be honest, mm -hmm. at the beginning. And I did my sommelier training. Um, I worked in fancy restaurants and served fancy people, fancy wine. And that kind of bored me at one point. So I wanted to explore it even more. Um, and the whole like wine part of it got me into an import company oh, that, cool. that also had beers in their portfolio. So I was always snooping around the beer office and wanting to be part of that. So rather than the fancy wine side of things. Yeah. Because also if you met me, you know, like I have a certain look that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is cool, cool as fuck. Yeah. It, de <laughs> it definitely, it definitely screams uh, Belgian beer more than uh, fine wine, I'd say. But it's, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I was all the time taken for being the, the secretary of whatever uh, wine portfolio manager that was supposed to arrive, but obviously yeah. it was me. So when I met, beer people the first I was like wow these people are super open and friendly and they're really helpful um so I just leaned more towards that from the very beginning and can you like Norway is such a funny place because like it's it's such a beautiful place it seems very calm and it's incredibly expensive so <laughs> there's like these all there's these different measures but it seems to have developed a lot over the last kind of 
maybe similar to the UK, maybe like five years or so. But what was there any, was it kind of just Belgian imports at that time? Nothing coming from America or? Well, I, th- I think I was lucky with the company I, I started with. Um, they're one of the older import companies in Norway. Yeah. So they had like that one big portfolio of traditional beers and yeah. back then what we would call craft beers. So we actually had the Anchor Brewing Company, uh, Rogue Ales, yeah. Uh, Sierra Nevada. Uh, yeah. There was like big craft breweries from the 70s from the US, which is where I also tried my first IPAs and uh, <sighs> the more like aggressive hop styles. Uh, so yeah, for me, that was super interesting back then. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar, I guess it's like European kind of beer culture definitely starts with those American. Anchor and Sierra Nevada are always like right at the top of that list. So did how was your balance of being an artist to be a drinker starting to go into at this time? Was it was <laughs> was was art slowly falling down and beer slowly going up, or were you still trying to balance both those worlds? Well, um, I think I realized at a very early stage that living off your art it's it's hard, and I I got into art because I wanted to become a tattoo artist. And this was 20 years ago. Back then in Norway, uh, most tattoo studios were run by bikers and drug dealers. Um, So I had an internship for about one and a half year. And I encountered some really, really, really strange people. Um, Misogynist as fuck. And and really, like, I had to deal with a lot of shit. Was there many, yeah, was there many, like, women in kind of the tattoo world or was this a totally new it was close to zero yeah um and i i just at one point i just had enough of mm-hmm. being talking shit to every single day at work and because i was i was in the studio during daytime and i went to the bar at night um, and i had so much fun um at my work in the bar and got to you know i grew in responsibilities and i got new areas of work that i could deal with and the cocktail mixing and the wine world started opening up for me so i just found so much more joy there yeah Yeah. uh, and a lot more money so (laughs) it was before the 2007 uh, global financial crisis so people in norway were still tipping like oil shakes you know wow. so i would walk home with a weekend worth tip like higher than my salary basically yeah and not not having to put up with uh hairy biker men being derogatory to you all day long as well which must yeah. have been a positive <laughs> that was a plus <laughs> The Thirst Time is supported by Crosby Hops. Whether you're looking for spot hops or locking in a hop contract, Crosby Hops has the hops you need exactly when you need them. Varieties like Amarillo, El Dorado, Idaho 7, Centennial, Kashmir and many more are available now. Crosby Hops is a B-Crop certified independent and family owned hop grower, processor and merchant based in Oregon's beautiful Willamette Valley in the heart of the Pacific Northwest USA. Through generations of hop industry experience and their robust merchant processor platform, Crosby has cultivated long-standing relationships with like-minded independent growers and hop breeders across the globe. This unique model, alongside partnering with uh, trusted independent distributors like Lockram Brewing Stores, complements Crosby's estate-grown hop portfolio to provide discerning brewers access to a diverse selection of the finest hops on earth. And I say this every time, but we can attest to that. We are also supported by Lockran Brewing Stores. Since 2014, Lockram Brewing Stores has been connecting brewers with the world's leading farmers and producers of brewing ingredients. By working directly with hop and malt producers, including Crosby Hops, Indie Hops, Hop Revolution, Biwa, Lockram Family Malt, Best Malts, and Castle Malting, Lockram Brewing Stores is able to supply the highest quality and most environmentally sustainable ingredients on the market today. Whether you're brewing hazy IPAs, Imperial Stout, or any other style of beer, Lockroom Brewing Stores has everything you need to take your beer from farm to class. You are listening to The Thirst Time, and this is our interview with Linda Scott. So if we can kind of like scoot forward, because yeah, when I 
when I first, I think, met you or maybe had contact with you, I think we'd gone and done a collaboration with Tool, which was one of our really early kind of European collaborations. And it was like a really big deal for us because Tool <laughs> were like, you know, we really idolized them and we were in our kind of infancy. Um, and speaking to the guys there, and you were running an offshoot of their brush bar in uh, Oslo. Yeah, that's right. And so Bruss, for those that haven't kind of been there, is just a perfect example of a, how a brew bar should, should be. It's uh, run by Tool, but it's got a beautiful restaurant side and then an incredible brew side and then an amazing bar and it all just fits together perfectly. So how did you kind of get involved with, was, was, did you have relations with Tor through everything that had gone on previously or was, did you just want to kind of latch on to something that they were doing and put it in, in you know, your home country in Oslo? So actually, when I was snooping around the beer offices in this wine or the import company that I worked, um, I was lucky enough that the beer portfolio developer, he was going on paternity leave. And my boss at the time, uh, Katarina, she gave me the opportunity to bring one good brand in because I was always complaining that, I mean, there's, it's not crafty enough. It's not hipster enough. I mean, I love Orval and all these German lagers and all the things we're doing, but I also think we should do something more modern and trendy. Yeah. Uh, so she gave me one shot. And I've been going a lot to Copenhagen back then and visiting the Mikkeler bars and drinking all these amazing craft breweries from the U.S. Um, and also picking up quite a few beers of Tool whenever I was here. Mm-hmm. So I, I like uh, the newbie freshman that I was, I just shot to an email, like without shame, asking if I could import his beers. And I think Tool, they were like one and a half year old at the time. Wow. And for them, it was the perfect timing. So he flew to Oslo and met me at the airport with a little case of beers and we had a tasting and it was love at first sight, basically. I love that. I love that. I just love these like little bits of luck that just happen on people's journeys. Like I interviewed Bruce from Left-Handed Giant and he was talking about how they got their project off the ground and just this chance meeting at the right time and the right space, like Two All is now, you know, it's a global brand. It's mm-hmm. huge. You've, you know, Two All City, which we'll definitely dive into in the interview, is just this incredible facility. But at that time, yeah, one and a half years old, uh, in their relative infancy, looking for new markets, and you just happened to have this one chance to to score a brand. Mm-hmm. And yeah, knowing you and knowing like Two All, it just, it does feel like a perfect fit. It, it actually was. And I mean, uh, it was at the time, I don't know how familiar you are with all the lawsuits that Mikkeler has been involved in over the years. But <laughs> no, but we could dig into them. <laughs> so they were with this importer in Norway and they got in a big fight and, and the Norwegian market basically ran out of, or the, the imports to Norway of the Mikkeler beers basically stopped for one year, more or less. Right which was at the exact time where we entered with Tuol and stumbling around as, as the new guy that I was, we, we basically did everything right in the right moment, which mm-hmm. grew Tuol to be one of the biggest brands in Norway. Uh, Norway is still one of our biggest markets. We have some very loyal fans there. Um, so yeah, it, it was a lot of luck and a lot of really hard work and convincing people that bananas belongs in an IPA. But I mean, <laughs> that was also always the fun part about tour, right? Yeah, totally. So, what what kind of time frame is this? What what year is this? Because so this I, would be two thousand and twelve. Two thousand and twelve. So yeah, the, I mean, still relative infancy of this kind of wave of beers coming through. And it's funny you mentioned Copenhagen there, which is obviously the heart of Tuol, which. Yeah, I guess Mikkel is must be the reason that that place is such a kind of mecca for amazing beers because it is, and it's still seen as that. You know, it's one of the the markets that we kind of prioritise because we know that the drinkers there have got a good palate and they will tell you if it's shit or they'll tell you if it's uh, good. So it's good to kind of have have your beers tested in that in that place. But what 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 drew you to to all? Because I, I mean, they have such an aesthetic to them that is is really special and Casper does such an incredible job on the design there. Um, 
so was it was it product or was it taste or was it like just just a perfect marriage of those two things? It was a mix of of both. I would say like I I coming from from Telemark and being this like old uh, black metal girl, the whole like post punk shoegazing. Oh, I'm so sad and depressed kind of aesthetics that Casper did back then really spoke to me. Yeah. I think the way they always managed to have some really like good beer names with good puns, uh, a lot of hidden sarcasm and jokes uh, and, and really balanced beers. Because to me, I've been at the time drinking a lot of Mikeller beers or other like the, all the Belgian uh, Pajotenland uh, Lambic sours mm-hmm. that I was getting through my import company. I, I found it interesting that Tuel was basically doing a little bit the same that Mikeller was doing, but he was aiming for the more extreme, uh, while Tuel was somehow doing the same, but keeping a level of balance to everything that mm-hmm. he did. And that really spoke to me because I come from a classic sommelier background. Uh, I worked in kitchens. Um, so, so I have this concept of things like every flavor or aroma should be there for a reason. It yeah. doesn't make sense to me to shove all stupid stuff into a bottle if it doesn't taste good in the end. So I think that was like my number one um, point of falling in love with Tuo, was the balance. So in this next part, we get into how Linda took that next step from running Bruss to taking over the sales at Tuo. And it all came from a pretty strong ultimatum wrapped up in a lovely offer from Tor. One that I'm pretty sure Linda doesn't regret at all. You are listening to the first time. This is our interview with Linda Scoggold. And yeah, well, Tuol and Mikola, just, it is just so interesting because you're like, they, they do feel totally different, but they both started in a... Well, I mean, Toy studied was a student of Michele, like a literal student at, at school, wasn't he? That's how it kind of the uh, urban urban myth goes. But but Mikel, yeah, definitely pushed things to real extremes and almost like in a provocative way. Yeah. Um, and like you said, Tuol definitely found this groove of just solid, solid beers, big flavors though, and and again, it just married with that beautiful aesthetic, that beautiful artwork of Casper's. So can you take us a little bit into growing to all within Norway? Was that was it a hard fight or did was it just like a forest fire that just took off right from the right from the get-go? Uh it was quite easy, I would say mm-hmm. at the start. I mean, some few years earlier to that we had Nugnoe as like the number one craft brewery of Norway. And they yeah. opened a lot of doors. I don't know if you remember their the Captain Double IPA and the Nogno IPA, which was like super aggressive at the time. Yeah. And for sure lighted a fire in the Norwegian beer scene, I would say. Uh, I think with Tuol, it was easy because there was new beers absolutely all the time. Yeah. We could have releases every day if we wanted to more or less. I mean, there was just pallets coming in with, different uh, beers on them, super fancy labels, funny beer names, and all the beers representing something that none of the breweries in Norway were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was still quite early for the Norwegian beer scene, I would say. So yeah, it was super fun and, and quite easy as well the first years. Can we go a little bit into that that kind of model? Because like the thing about, the, I guess it's like advantageous on, on certain degrees, but as a salesperson, there's obviously challenges with it because because the beer is not necessarily getting brewed within Tuol's facility because they were kind of gypsy brewing and I don't know if it was De Proof at that time. Um, oh, yeah. So you could just roll these recipes out, but you obviously need quantity to balance that out as a business. Yep. So you're getting all of these different releases. Did that pose any challenge? Because like, you know, I work in sales to a degree and I'm just like, what did, if we were having like 16 releases a week, I wonder if we'd be able to like manage that. I'm sure it was for the sales team. At the moment, yeah. I was working with portfolio development. So I was oh, so yeah. you know, <laughs> sending out the info on the beer saying like, guys, you need to sell this. Like I need yeah. to cleared so I can get the next pallets in. <laughs> okay, so you can, okay, for spanning from there that you, you are now 
you head up the international sales, which is a big, huge department of um, of tools. So, so how is that? How have you moved from that portfolio development into your role now? So the thing is, at, at one point, like I, I grew apart from this import company in Norway, mm-hmm. and me and Tuda had over the years and built up such a good relationship that we always had this friendly joke going that we should do something together, but we needed an oil shake or something to to provide us the money to be able to do yeah. school. And um, at the time, there was no opportunity for me to work with Tuolk. They were still, what, five guys working from a basement here in Denmark. <laughs> so I started working with Ledvig in Stavanger. Oh, okay. And while doing that, me and Tura were contemplating opening the Bruce Bar, obviously mm-hmm. with, with Lervig knowing that. So I think I was with Lervig for a little more than one and a half year. And when the, the bar project started to like take form and we had an actual address and that, I, I felt a bit torn between Lervig and Tool. So I stopped working for Lervig and then um, I did some export uh, representing to, to like justify my salary into a while we built the bar oh uh, i i love that you have this like relationship with to and that, like you carried it through different job roles i didn't know that you'd been to living before that were you were you doing sales there as well or was that was that yeah i was role? i was their national sales rep back then yeah so so you had you had a connection with tor that, that was kind of leading you towards something and so yeah bruce came to be in which was this beautiful like it was quite like cozy it wasn't like this huge huge bar did it feel like a huge risk doing that or was it just just exciting and um you just needed to get your your you know to invest more into into what tool was it was super exciting uh it felt like dangerously close to absolutely stupid and, and <laughs> really fun at the same time yeah um also, it's not an easy city to have a business, especially mm-hmm. not a bar, because the, the alcohol laws of Norway are retarded and mm-hmm. alcohol tax is even more retarded. Yeah. So, and we also agreed that we wouldn't have this industrial lager on tap, which is what carries most of the cost for, for all Norwegian bars that, you know, the big breweries are able to put up a lot of money up front or to give you a kickback deal per liter sold, whatever. And when we decided not to go that way, I already had some bad feelings that like this is going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. And it was a 50 square meter uh, bar and the, the toilets took up half of that space <laughs> because of the universal shape it needs to have in Norway so it can fit yeah. wheelchairs and all that. And I, yeah, I think like it was fun three years. Uh, but I'm really happy it's over. We closed the whole yeah. thing last year. Um, I really enjoyed serving fresh beers out of Bruce uh, straight from our brew pub here in Denmark. And I felt we got a lot closer to our uh, loyal drinkers up there. But I, yeah. but it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine, you know, like you said, it kept that relationship going though, which was the most important thing in like keeping that contact and keeping your contacts with the, the product as well. But yeah, I mean, when me and Matt uh, did a little trip to Oslo, we, uh, I think we walked around for like two hours because we were on like a work budget and we were like, so when should we have our like single beer of the night? <laughs> like, cause it was like, it was so ridiculous. It's so expensive. The, the taxation so expensive. is just, just out of this world. Okay. So three years, Bruce was there, a little bit of a whirlwind, a little bit of a struggle, uh, but keeping that kind of relationship alive. Um, what was the what was the next steps for you after that? Well, actually, I didn't stay the whole three years. I mean, I stayed yeah. on the owner's side, but halfway into that project, me and my girlfriend at the time decided that we were we wanted to travel the world basically for six months, and then after that, moved to Copenhagen just because Oslo was becoming a bit too small for us, I guess. Yeah. Uh, we both stay there most of our lives. And then we've been going back and forth a lot to Copenhagen because of my work with Tuol. And we both really love the city. So I called up Tura and said like, hey, I want to I wanna go traveling. And then I really want to come work in, in Copenhagen. And he said, well, I would love to have you, but you would have to come now. So no traveling for you. <laughs> <gasps> wow. 
Yeah. And the choice, well, well, I mean, I guess I know the choice now, but that was a pretty, that's a pretty strong ultimatum to, to make. Yeah, so he, he wrapped it like more like, oh, Linda, but you can be like the, the sales manager of Asia. So you can like work and travel at the same time. Wow. And that sounded lucrative, you know. So I moved yeah. down here and my girlfriend, obviously, she had to like close the, the work that she was doing and whatever. So she spent three or four more months without me there. Um, and by the time she got here, We'd already like settled that I wasn't going to work with Asia and I had some whole different markets on my hands and I didn't have the time to travel at all. So. Right. So, okay. So he lied to you. That's uh, that's fine. But you, you, you're here now. <laughs> you, you know, you're still there now. So it's, it's all good. So, okay. So now you, you're in this, this place now and this is a very different way of working to, I mean, there's obviously similarities, but like I said, like with a, a gypsy brewer, yeah. um, you creating recipes, you have to create a certain amount. Your your you know your margins obviously slightly different because you're getting people, you're paying people to create this beer whilst you don't own it, um, yeah. own the brewery. So I'm just interested in this in general. Like how how does that work? Like how was it was it challenging to try and put so many different beers into the market at so many different times? Were you brewing different beers for different markets? Were you tying into certain spots like the monopolies in Sweden and all that, this kind of stuff? Like how, how, yeah, how does it work? How do, how do you go about that? <laughs> I mean, we've tried it all, I would say. Yeah. Um, for me, it was a big change. Like, obviously, I, I did some export before we had to a city and telling the story of being a gypsy brewer and being able to travel the world and do collabs and learn from, you know, you heard that story yourself Yeah, that we spent 10 years of developing and telling people. And then suddenly I was here with a brewery and a core range and I need to reinvent what 2L is and what we stand for. And obviously mm -hmm. our basic philosophy is the same and the people are the same. Um, but for some markets, it was easier to change over than for others. Um, I would say that the quality of the beer in terms that it fits the modern profile a bit more now, for me, is a, is a very big thing yeah. that I think they, they did wonderfully out of Tool City. Um, so it's definitely in some ways a lot more easier because we are more up to date than we were yeah. at the end at Proof. So now... Okay, so we will skip through to prove to to Tool City, which is this absolutely incredible project. Like, I haven't had a chance to actually travel out there and see it, the scope of it. But it's a it's an old ketchup factory, isn't it? <laughs> like in in the middle of nowhere. It is. We were like looking around Denmark for a place to buy, and mm -hmm. started looking, you know, at reasonable sized venues. Um, and then this place showed up, as you say, in the middle of nowhere, but with like, it's 150,000 square meter land. Fuck. And then it's 26,000 square meter buildings, uh, wow. a lot of different buildings. And there was so much equipment left that we saw a big value of, of also buying it together with the whole place. And yeah it, it just our like let's start this slowly and grow into a brewery we own ourselves suddenly escalated into let's build a city <laughs> we can do it <laughs> if you build it they will come and you know because this this that decision there is an interesting one because i'm actually going to interview i don't know when this episode will come out but enough but i've got uh i'll be interviewing mikkel from from Mikolas, which is ah, that's cool. exciting um you know, and I was going back a lot of through a lot of his old footage of like documenting what they were doing. And he was speaking pretty strongly about how he didn't ever want a brewery. Yeah. Um, what was Tor's philosophy on that? Was he kind of of a similar vein and then changed his mind? Or did he always dream of having the facility to brew his own product in? I think in the beginning, he was super happy with being a mm -hmm. gypsy brewer. Um, but when we opened the brew pub here, Bruce, and we realized that we actually do know quite well how to like brew banging IPAs yeah. and actually also do so very cost efficiently. Mm -hmm. We obviously started to look into what it would cost us uh, 
both like mental health wise and, and money wise to have yeah. our own brewery. And I think, yeah, the like two, three years of training we got with Bruce, it made it like clearer and clearer that we needed our own place. And Tore is a very visionary uh, guy. Mm -hmm. So it's not only like, he doesn't only want to have his hands in beers. There's a lot of other stuff going on out in Swinning as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it was the whole idea of creating a, a hub for craft producers, whether it be ciders or beers or kombuchas or seltzers or spirits. I mean, it was just the most perfect abandoned place that we could stumble over. And I'm again, so excited uh, part of luck actually here. <laughs> well, yeah, again, like falling into that look, like, how, yeah, just coming across this old ketchup factory, which is like... It, it almost feels that you've got infinite growth potential there because I, I remember speaking to Tim and Nathan, like who were brewers at uh, Brush, and they were like, "Yeah, we will never need to do be anywhere other than here." Like, and you know, just the the room for the barrels alone was probably the size of our brewery, or just it, it <laughs> looks amazing. But you were saying there as well that that Tor and and you guys at Tour, like you were branching out into other strands of the markets, like the Micropolis cocktails and that kind of side of things. Um, so how's, and when, when we were over, actually, you know, we got shown the little, little laboratory. I, I can't remember the gentleman's <laughs> name who was running the, like the Macropolis kind of side of things. Morty. Um, that's it. Um, so yeah, now you've branched out into all of these different avenues. Are you still, are you covering that yourself as well? Or is it just, is it still beer that you're solely focused on? Well, we, we have two like companies and two brands now. So okay. Micropolis is still like run by the people behind Tuo, uh, but it's mainly Morton and Christian Guardian that used to be the head chef at Bruce. Yeah. Uh, they cook up most of the cocktails and we just finished building the distillery uh, that we built ourselves from all like scrap pieces that they used to vacuum distill ketchup and whatever. Uh, uh, so it's looking really cool. <laughs> and that, that's really crafty. <laughs> wow. Uh, who was who, who the creative mind behind that? Who that, That's some serious engineering. Yeah. So the thing is uh, alongside, I mean, Tour City is placed in a place called Sminninga uh, yeah. in uh, North Zealand. And a lot of the people that lives in Swinning and they used to work in this old Bovee's uh, factory for Otka. Mm -hmm. And obviously when they packed up and left, all these people were left without jobs. So we also wanted to give something back to the community there and like offer a lot of people jobs back either in warehousing or gardening or like this guy that used to be the technician of this place. So he knows every little piece and part of the whole place by heart. He's worked there for many years and when we, we were looking at distilleries and wanting to buy, you know, equipment that we needed, and he said, why would you ever want to pay like millions of kroner for that when I can build it with what we have? Like, well, take me wow. half a year and you'll have a perfect distillery. So that's yeah, that's really cool. Oh, that's so cool. That, like you're trying to restore the heart to that place. Like literally it was the kind of like um, epicenter of this small community that kind of got ripped away. And yeah, yet you've, you're, you're bringing new life to it. And I know that, you know, further down the line, you've got like orchards planted there. You've got, like you say, kombucha, you've got everything. Um, how does it feel from like, this is like really cheesy maybe, but like on an emotional level, like on a, on a sales perspective, I know that this sounds kind of weird, but to have your kind of like, to be able to feel the process a lot more, yeah, you know, like and, and be part of that process a lot more. And feel that you know you know the guys who are producing that beer, and whether it's good or bad, you can critique them. But like having some more like an actual relationship with the product, did, did that shift anything in you, or or does it feel just you know just the same kind of sending things out as it no, was? For me, it definitely shifted, and I think like mm -hmm. coming from the import world, I was used to work with a portfolio that I I'm not hands on knowing the production team, you know. Yeah. Uh, so f back in the days working with Tuala as a gypsy brewery, that wasn't really a problem for me. Then I went on working with Lervig and I took a lot more pride in, you know, seeing the beers being brewed, yeah. seeing the struggles. Um, so coming back to Tuala, that was then the gypsy brewing 
uh, I, I struggled a bit with coming from Lerwig production facility, like the whole ownership to the whole process and going back to telling the gypsy story. So I was super happy already back then knowing that we were going to have a brewery at one point. And that kind of made me focus on the future uh, and kept me here in the company. So now knowing that I can at any time walk into the brewery, talk to the guys and, and learn more about the process, because as you know, us sales reps, we're not biochemists or microbiologists or whatever. There's still, I've been in this industry now for 20 years, but there's still so much I need to learn. Yeah. And I feel sometimes really stupid next to these people that are 20 years younger than me, but know so much more than me. And I, yeah, I just love going there and tasting and learning. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and I'm really proud of it. Yeah. You, uh, again, I can't wait to get out there because I, 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 it was just so exciting to see as a project and hear about, because from my personal point of view, I can imagine that like going from that brew space where you are watching the hard work of like your friends right there like sweating it out day in day out to try and just produce the best possible beer they can yeah uh, and then you you know you want to represent that with all your heart because it means so much and you know you have to carry that message forward into a marketplace um and i always wondered what that balance was with you know whether it mickler or two all because the beers are absolutely amazing but they're kind of created in a laboratory you know like it is a the proof is this absolute brewing lab yeah. um, that has, you know, ev- all the bells and whistles you could ever imagine. Um, so it's cool to hear that you, you know, you've been on this journey and it, I guess it's just starting out as well. So how, have you noticed that, I mean, can you speak of any like teething issues at the start or anything or was it pretty smooth sailing straight from the off? No, I mean, building a brewery from scratch, not a brewery, I mean, we were all thinking like this is going to be smooth sailing, mm-hmm. uh, but we we are very much affected by Murphy's Law in Twill. Um, that's like our signature, I would say. Yeah. So obviously everything that can go wrong we'll goes go wrong. wrong during yeah. 2020. And I would say like all in all, we did pretty good. The beers are amazing and uh, the markets have received them well. Uh, there's been a lot of like, crying and swearing in the brewery and birds on the floor, like trying to get coconut down the drain or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. So we're learning the hard way, but we're learning while having fun. And I think that's the most important part. Yeah, definitely. Um, Was it 2020 that it kind of first came to be then? Was the the first first year that... Was in January. Oh, right. Okay. So let's, let's dive into, I, when I first started this podcast, I was like, it was tr- try and get away from the, the, you know, the COVID pains that were um, happening and just like connect with people. But, you know, as time's gone on, it's such a huge part of what every brewery and every business is facing. So yeah, how did to all kind of adapt um, from a sales perspective and like a production perspective to, to what was a pretty... Well, I mean, I don't need to highlight 2020 to anyone. I think everyone knows <laughs> <laughs> kind of ins and outs of that. So how, yeah, how, how has it been in uh, to all? I mean, for me personally, at least 2020 was ups and downs. We, we yeah. came out like in January, you know, full speed, this amazing new brewery, amazing portfolio, super excited. Super excited. Yeah, yeah. Finally put beers on the table after been speaking about it for one year and then crash landed in the beginning of March. I mean, Denmark went into lockdown, I think March 13th. So already mm-hmm. very early on. Um, and I mean, I, I think all of us here at one point thought that, okay, that's it. We'll mm-hmm. just have to close everything down and, and that's it. That was 12. Um, and obviously that really fast changed it into, yeah. well, we're still selling beers in supermarkets. There's the monopolies still are going. Uh, our web shop and beer club just went through the roof last year mm-hmm. with sales. So, I mean, we were all, we're a young, like flexible company. So everyone basically sat down and said, okay, how can we make this work uh, without shutting production down, without shutting sales down? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of creative processes on how do we make, how do we make people drink beer when they sit at home bored as fuck in lockdown? Yeah. yeah. 
and I think all breweries over Europe have had the same year. I mean, you ha- kind of have to reinvent how you sell things and how you brew things. But. I can't even like think of how much we've changed it. Like, you know, it's it's probably like 10, 10 years worth of transitioning in like nine months or something, you know, like <laughs> totally changing everything. And I think, I don't know how you felt about it, but like the validation that came with it where people actually were like, no, we want to support you guys, you know, your beer actually brings some kind of cause sometimes I've been like oh we work in the beer world like people just drinking it like did he did he really care about it like or yeah. is it just something that they think is nice and then I think with this whole situation you really realize that no people really you know it brings joy to people they really enjoy yeah. it and like and, and it's a positive and putting out new beers is, is something that takes people's mind off the the kind of monotony of the lockdowns and and such so so it's nice that you guys flipped pretty quickly into something that that was working, and then did it become ex- like almost exciting? It's like right, let's just fucking hit the ground running. Let's just let's just go. This is it's going to be a strange start to to all city, but we can do this. Yeah, and I mean now because we also have uh, our own logistics, it was easy. Yeah. To, it wasn't easy, but fairly easy to to flip around and, and just start pounding beers be to uh, like to customers directly rather than to importers, and we were all. Like no matter what department you normally work for, I think we all like just pulled the sleeves up and said, "Like, okay, let's let's fix this. Can't be that bad. Like, 2020 is not going to be the end of who we are and what we want to do." So, and it also I think gave us a lot more time to focus on becoming that brewery that we wanted to be because mm-hmm. it also bought us some time on. Um, perfecting our recipes and our the way we do our dry hop or you know little stuff that when you build a brewery you don't necessarily have the time to do that if you have to start selling like loads of beer like, the very yeah. first batch so somehow for us it was also like a bit lucky that we that we got this pandemic that we could slow a bit down and start like really reflecting on what we were doing so kind of looking forward now from from the start of where two all cities been uh which is just a crazy year to start any business i mean obviously you had a little bit of back catalog to to know how to manage these things how do you see the beer scene progressing how do you see two all city progressing and two all as a brand progressing um for the next yeah next five years or so i think right now i mean there is endless of opportunities for us out there yeah. And we've had this wonderful people of Ablerov, which is a Danish cidery uh, that moved in with us last year. And they, they make ciders uh, out there. And we just purchased some shares in their company because we really oh, cool. believe in their products and we really want to help them out with, with growing their brand. And because of the, the big plant that we have there, we're able to grow a lot of trees and a lot of fruit that we're going to obviously using these ciders uh we have a company called lesk out there that does um kombucha which i personally love (laughs) it's the whole like idea of learning from each other you know they're really good with lactic fermentation we have a a part of tool now that we call tool nature which is our like unclean uh brewery where we do wild beers uh, barrel aging and we're experimenting a lot with you know different mixed fermentations or bacterias and when you have a lot of people out there already working with natural fermentation only and spontaneous fermentation on the apple side it's super interesting to sit down and chat with them and exchange ideas on where to go from here so it, it kind of like bringing it back into your like art student uh early days but it's that kind of residency it's always just like commune isn't it where you've just got all of these people who kind of share a similarity but doing something totally different but like can come together collaboratively um I've not really thought about that with Tool or City but is there a lot of conversations in between each business of like yeah like you said like lactic fermentation and stuff in cider and in kombucha and then bringing that into beer have you actually have those th- through three things like coalesced and and any product come out of it? So we did a, a collab called the City Boys not long ago, which was um, a coffee kombucha 
with imperial stout uh, and I think it was pure cider that was barrel aged on I think Phantom Spirits because Phantom Spirits is also out there uh, so we barrel aged on his old like spirits barrels and not my personal favorite but <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of really fun feedback because it went in our uh, uh, beer club boxes yeah, and a lot of people really really enjoyed it and loved it Wow. I mean, that is a perfect, I mean, like when I was talking about, oh, it has to be in any collaborations. I mean, that's like a collaboration of every single element of, of exactly. the businesses that are. <laughs> and this is maybe... the fun part, you know, when like we're all close friends out there, you sit down after a long day of work, you get a bit tipsy with whatever you're drinking. And that's when the good ideas come, you yeah. know, that's how the brilliant ideas Come to well, and it, and it is, it's, you know, like for people that don't know, it is like it's a little bit out of, is anyone actually living there? Or is it just kind of like, because uh, it's a two hour commute, isn't it, from Copenhagen? Is Yeah, one hour, 20 minutes by train. Yeah. But yeah, the thing is, because our brewers obviously have to go there like really early in the morning. And we have some new brewers that has come from abroad. And because this is such a big facility, there is actually an old dorm there with rooms and beds and kitchens and whatever so some of the people actually live out there on the weekday and go back here on the weekends because i mean it's really long days for them yeah it makes sense and, uh, it totally makes sense one of our brewers mar uh, she's also a skater so she built a skate ramp out there we have a pool table i mean endless supply of of spirits and beer so it's, it's kind really, of a really fun yeah, thing out there <laughs> It's a place that if the apocalypse comes, it's a kind of good place or like nuclear war or something, you know, that's kind of where you want to be at. Exactly. You've got it all like covered. During summer, there's so much space. You could bring a sleeping bag or a tent, whatever, and just like settle there for some time. Linda has been, in one way or another, involved in the beer industry for nearly two decades now. So here we ask that important question and the terrible pun, where do we go from beer? How does Linda see the next five years or so evolving in the beer scene? Well, yeah, spanning out then, Linda, because you've been in this industry for 20 years now, so you've seen it from like, like you say, just those little days in Norway where you're getting a couple of Belgian beers through to the Norwegian market now, which is absolutely flooded with incredible beers from all over the world. How do you see the next five years panning out for the craft beer industry? Um, do you see a lot more kind of like cultural integration or do you see a lot of like more challenging beer recipes or do you think a lot of things have been explored and it's just going to kind of peter on in the same direction that already is? I think we'll see a lot of the direction that is already here. Um, yeah. I hope and I do think that a lot of breweries has had the time to pause a bit this year and, and maybe rethink or reinvent themselves a bit or look deeper into different beer styles or fermentation styles, whatever, so that we will see maybe a little change in what people want to drink. I am super, super done with hazy IPAs. <laughs> <laughs> that was never like my favorite style. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm a old, good old classic lager girl, um, and that's obviously w where I would like to see that we go. But I don't think yeah. we're heading there anytime soon. Like whenever you ask a brewer what they think is going to be the future, they will always say a lager. But I, yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. That's very wishful thinking. I think we'll see a lot more of what is already here: uh, mm -hmm. fruited Berlin Weisses, uh, super hazy hoppy IPAs, uh, flavored stouts. I think maybe a lot more people is uh, trying mixed fermentations and the more mm -hmm. like traditional way of doing sour beers. Um, well, yeah. It's interesting and a very kind of a topic that is touched on a lot in every podcast that I've done when <laughs> speaking to brewers is lager uh, because it is everything that a brewer wants to produce. And I know, I don't know if like that, I don't know if our drinkers understand why, uh, but I think it's just like the pure simplicity of something um, is actually really hard to do and like consistently do that. But you just, you know, you pit it against just these huge macro producing lager facilities that can just 
do it for the cheapest, cheapest price. And, and, and how many discerning lager drinkers do you have? That's the thing. Cause I'm totally with you. And I've, you know, I've said it in every podcast that lager is the place I would love to, to see this. And, and I interviewed Jeff Bagby from Bagby beer. Yeah. And he was, he was a little bit, you know, on that, he, well, he was really on the train of like, he doesn't like where the beer has gone to, you know, he is a traditionalist. Yeah. Uh, he, he loves the story of beer. He loves the heritage of beer. He loves the spirit of like what these older recipes mean to people. And, you know, he'd seen it really taken over by big hazy IPAs, <laughs> these imperial stouts. Um, you know, I, I enjoy those beers, but like, I, I do wonder, I do wonder if there's going to be almost like a circular motion to back towards West Coast IPAs and, and lagers and stuff like that. I don't know, you, you know, you work in sales, so, and you guys probably cover a bit of that uh, ground. I know you do amazing lagers and things. So do you see any take up on that or is it still a pretty slow, slow game? I mean, we, we decided to go with what you would call a core range of beers yeah. and the 45 days lager, which is quite a traditional German lager uh, that we lager for 45 days. Um, so it's more like on the crafty side of what, the lager drinkers would normally yeah. drink but yeah for sure we do sell a lot of that and and people really enjoy it we've also done spin-off versions in like a hella style and the coach style and mm-hmm. people people really pick up on that and, and buy a lot of it um but i don't think it will ever be our <laughs> no so there is hope that and i mean you you know you I don't know if Tim's just left, has he now? But you had the advantage of having a, a very a very German brewer uh, who is all about those styles. So <laughs> I, I, you know, your your pilsners and stuff were out of this world. They were incredible. But yeah, it's weird that it's not yet kind of like. I just I just think yeah, you when you see it from a sales point of view, you just they they just never move as fast as those big juicy IPAs. They don't. Uh, so kind of bringing it to to a close here, Linda, thank you so much for your time. It's been so cool to connect with you again and see you. And uh, and as I said before, yeah. we will share a beer again one day. <laughs> I know it. Um, so the last question is, you've got one last beer. Yeah, you're at, you're at Tool City. There's a fridge there. Uh, Global have pandemic. Anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's the, the, the nuclear war is happening around you, but you've got one last beer. It can be something that's never been brewed. It can be something that uh, has been brewed. It could be something that you brew yourself. Um, what would that beer be and why? This question is always tough for me because closest to my heart would, would be to say Orval because mm-hmm. I think it's the most wonderful beer on this planet. Mm-hmm. But I would be a liar if I said that was what I would drink for the rest of my life or as my last beer, because that would yeah. most definitely be uh, a lager. <laughs> <laughs> Along with the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, honestly, like what episode is this going to be? 14? I'm, we're, we're at least 11 out of 14 lager drinkers. Yeah. So if the apocalypse has lager, then we'll be all right. We'll be all right. Yeah. And we have a we have really really big lager tanks out in Spinning and So if you want to be on the side, that's where you should come and bunker up for the. Apocalypse. And what what is it? Just to give it a little bit more of a like a, a reason, like what what is it about lagers that is just so close to your heart? Apart from early university days. Uh, I think it has nothing to do with my early university <laughs> It's again, it's this perfect, balanced, very thirst quenchable drink that is crisp and hoppy and nice, dry. It's just perfect. there we are another episode down man it's been really fun to get this back up and running again i really hope you've been enjoying it too it's been so nice to get messages uh especially from friends in the brewing industry shout out to lucy clark who is a total legend and going through a pretty hard time now whose mum contracted covid so we are sending love and prayers to you lucy and she sent me this lovely message saying it sounds you know like 
two friends in a room having a conversation and it's something that I've missed a lot and it's something I've missed a lot so I've been trying to do that you know zoom isn't the best to try and conjure up these atmospheres of warmth but we really try and put all that energy into making it feel as if we're just sat in a room shooting the shit really um so thank you if you can uh, give it a five star review on apple that really helps a big shout out to our sponsors locker and malts and crosby hops um and of course tom coucher for producing this thing shout out to you dude thank you again uh, we will see you next time for another episode as ever thank you and stay thirsty